Hi, this is Jeff Hayden, author of The Motivation Myth, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with the peerless Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. Joining me today is Jeff Hayden. Jeff is an author, speaker, and contributing editor for Inc. Magazine, where his articles on leadership, entrepreneurship, and goal achievement are read by over 2 million people each month. He's a highly in-demand ghostwriter who's authored more than 50 nonfiction books, including four best for business and investing titles that reached number one on Amazon's bestseller list. He's based in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and he's here today to talk about his book, The Motivation Myth, How High Achievers Really Set Themselves Up to Win. Welcome, Jeff. Bill, glad to be here. Glad to have you. Jeff, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Wow. So you said growing up, and that makes me think early age. And so I'm going to pick, although it's kind of stereotypical, I'm going to pick my grandfather. He was a, basically a tenant farmer. He lived in a house on a farm that someone else owned. He didn't own the house. He didn't own his vehicle, which in a high risk situation, that makes him pretty high risk. But And he didn't graduate high school. So I would go work with him in the summers, and he would often make me do the worst jobs because that's what parents and grandparents did back then. And I remember mucking out horse stalls one day, which is a really nasty job if they haven't been done frequently. And it smelled and I was whining and complaining. And I finally kind of propped my shovel against the wall and made some, you know, kind of a noise. And I said, man, it smells in here. And he looked at me and he said, son, that's the smell of job security, which sounds weird. But I realized, even at that age, I realized, okay, if I'm willing to do something that other people are not, if I'm willing to try something other people won't, if I'm willing to go the mile that other people won't go, then I can probably be successful because the extra mile is actually a, it's a vast wasteland that's almost unpopulated. So I would say I would pick him because it made me realize that doing the hard work is what gets you to success. Jeff, do you remember a time when that advice or that lesson from your grandfather helped you make a choice or a decision in your life? I would say that I actually, I don't think about him, but I think about that premise all the time. I'm not particularly smart. I'm not particularly talented. I have a college degree, but I wouldn't call myself educated. All I really have, my only competitive advantage is to outwork someone else. And so... The idea when you start something of, oh, let me find a hack or let me find a shortcut or let me find this you know sneaky little way to somehow circumvent the hard work to get to the result. I don't usually think that way because that never works for me. And it's actually kind of comforting and empowering to say to yourself, okay, this is going to be really hard and it's going to take a long time. But I know that if I keep my head down and do the work, I can get there. And even if I don't quite get there, I'll get a really long way as opposed to you know, trying to figure out some way to sneak my way through it. It's just on a side note, I love Tim Ferriss, but the whole idea of like hacking your way to success or shortcuts to achieve something, he doesn't really believe that, although he does talk about it sometimes. But I think that does a disservice to people because there's this idea that if I can just figure out this clever way to pull this off, 
I will leapfrog all the hard work that's involved. And I've never seen that work for anybody that I know. And every successful person I've talked to, they always talk about the hard work part. They never talk about the eureka moment that caused them to jump past the line of other people that are working hard. Let's parse that out, because I think about shortcuts in a few different ways, and I want to know whether you agree or have additional insights into them. There are some shortcuts where people think that they could say magic phrases to build rapport instantly with people and get them to persuade them. And then there are other shortcuts like, you know, when people ask you hard questions, if you've prepared answers to them because you've thought it through, you'll have an easier time answering them, say, in a job interview, I'm just imagining. I think of Tim Ferriss, too, and I know that Tim's done a lot of experiments, and that might be the hard work that we're talking about, but it makes a huge difference for people to say, oh, wait, he's actually figured out the low-carb diet, and if you follow the low-carb diet, you'll get results that you might not have if you had to do the hard work without the benefit and guidance of that advice. Do you make a similar distinction or, or not? How do you see it? No, I, I, I agree totally with you. So like you had an interview, you had a, an example of, say, a job interview. The preparation side is the hard work that allows you in that moment to be ready and to have your answers and to know what you're doing. But the preparation side is the hard work. So you could say, wow, I've got a shortcut now because I know exactly how to answer that question. But you got to that place by effort and perseverance and discipline. The stuff with Tim and say a low carb diet, he had to do a lot of experimenting to figure out what actually worked for him. Is it true that you could adopt something similar without going through the experimentation and probably get really good results? Yeah. But the hard work side is actually following through on the diet. Just because you know what to do. I mean, there's millions of us. We know what to do in lots of areas of our lives. That doesn't mean we actually do it. And so I think it's great to find ways to say, okay, this works and I know it works. And so that's what I'm going to do. And so that you could call a shortcut if you wanted to. But the trick is then having the, the willingness to buckle down and actually do what it is that you figured out you can do. It shows the difference between looking for a shortcut without developing your answers, let's say in the job interview example, uh, versus someone who's looking to just advance without building proper rapport, sharing their talents and representing what they can do accurately with enthusiasm. Right. Well, like from a sales point of view, you may you may come up with two or three magic phrases that on a cold call tend to generate better results. And that's cool, but not every time will that work. And sometimes you're going to have to be ready to answer you know, questions or push back or figure out how to overcome obstacles or figure there's all kinds of other stuff that has to happen. And so just knowing the magic phrases doesn't make you a great salesperson. It's all the other skills that you bring with it that allows you to be successful is what you do. So that's the hard work side. So I'm all for finding the best way to do something. And if you want to call it that a shortcut, that's fine. But the best way still requires effort. I'm going to quote an article I read of yours recently that talked about Bill Gates, who uses other people's solutions to solving business problems. You identify two really important questions that he routinely asks. And I don't know how you identified or distilled them, but I find them pretty useful. You say that if people ask, who's dealt with this problem well, and what can we learn from them? That helps shortcut the process. Because now you're putting your efforts and energy 
into proven paths. Is that a way that people can look for wisdom from others that they've learned through hard work and effort and trial and error? They can adopt shortcuts that work. Oh, absolutely. The source of that is actually from one of Bill's blog posts. He has a blog that he runs. And so that's where I got those two questions. So it comes directly from Bill. The distinction you're making is what I call the difference between a coach and a pro. So let's use a, I don't know, let's say you want to run a marathon. And so you go to your local gym and you talk to a person who's, I don't know, there's a physical trainer there and you say, Hey, I want to run a marathon. Can you give me like a routine? Give me a, give me a process. You know, let's, let's get going. They're going to give you something that probably will work. Who knows? Or you could go to someone, you know, that has actually run three or four marathons and say, look, I would like to run a marathon, but I'm not a runner. So if you were me, how would you approach this and what would you do? And in that case, you're getting real world advice from a person who has been there and done that and has the finisher medal to show for it. And so that's really the heart of what Bill is saying. Has someone solved this problem, whatever it may be? And if so, how can I learn from that so that I can solve it too? Everybody likes to reinvent the wheel, but there are so many perfectly good wheels out there for just about everything that we want to do. And if you find someone who has done what it is you want to do, maybe you just emulate or better yet, you contact them because it's, it's possible to contact just about anybody anywhere now. And you just say, if you ask nicely, hey, I would like to do what you, what you do or what you accomplish, can you give me some advice? I've never had anyone turn me down that I've actually managed to reach because if you're sincere and you ask, nice, ask nicely, first of all, it's flattering because basically you're saying, hey, wow, you did something that I would love to be able to do. That shows you respect them. And people tend to like to help other people. And successful people, I think, are more aware than most that their success was based on the fact that other people along the way helped them out. I don't know any successful people that think that they did it all by themselves. So looking around for someone who has accomplished what you want to accomplish and then either emulating or better yet asking for advice and then following it, which is where the hard work comes in, that's a perfect recipe for success. And it means you don't have to sit around and dream up this new solution to a problem that has already been solved. One other interesting aspect of that is that, let me just talk about it from a personal standpoint. I've been a tennis coach and helped people develop their skills. And many times people will say, oh, if a pro could just tell me what to do with my backhand or my serve, that would make such a difference. And I've found that many of the best players in the world are not the best at being able to break down into a progression what someone should work on. So there are two different people, the best trainers in the world versus the best coaches. When my son was learning, I didn't go and, and look for, to get a lesson with Andre Agassi. I went to Andre Agassi's coaches <laughs> because I figured they knew how to help him build a killer forehand. And I was it was greatly rewarding to have that kind of experience. How do you make it clear to people that when they're looking for a way to break it down, they need to have someone who has the knowledge, who's been down that path, who's you know achieved what you're looking to achieve, and then also to balance it so that they can find an entree ramp to it and actually go from where they are now, which might be you know decades back from where that pro started, to help them build up so they can actually do those routines or follow the advice that the pro gives them. I think it's almost automatic. If you, if you find someone who has done what you want to do, they are more aware than anyone of the fundamentals of what they do. 
and of how they figured out the process or the routine that they followed, they know that better than anyone. So they will naturally go down to that kind of base core level. They're not going to give you these esoteric grip pieces of advice if it's Agassiz's coach when he realizes that you don't even have the fundamentals of your ground strokes down. So I don't think that that's really a challenge because they know the fundamentals better than anyone else. And then as far as the importance of finding someone who actually knows it and can explain it, you answered the question basically in the way that you described it. It's all you have to do is look for someone who has done what you want to do. And they're everywhere. If it's personal fitness or personal health, examples are everywhere. If it's sales, if it's starting a business, doesn't even have to be the same business. If you want to start a restaurant, it helps to talk to people who have launched successful restaurants. But the fundamentals of starting a business, at least where choosing locations and capital and how to find employees and how to lead and all those other things, they do cross lots and lots of industries. So it's actually really easy. And I think people get hung up on, I have to find the perfect person when really the perfect person is the one who has done it and who is willing to spend a little time with you, helping you to get started yourself. And in retrospect, you will look back and realize, wow, that was the perfect person. So long as you follow the advice. Exactly. And that's the worst thing you could do. And, and that's a really good point. And I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of people ask for advice, then they'll listen to it. They'll say thanks. They'll go off and not really follow it. And then they'll go back and say, hey, wow, this isn't really working. And they never actually did what they were told they should try to do. So it's really tempting to give something a try for a day or two and say, wow, this just doesn't work for me because I'm, you know, I'm unique. I'm an individual. I'm special. Well, no, you're not. Now, we're all about the same. There are micro differences in all of us, but the bulk of someone's advice who has done it will work for everyone. And you don't know what you need to tweak until you've actually put in a lot of time and effort and you have data to show you where you need to tweak it for you. Just because it doesn't feel good or feel happy or fun doesn't mean it's not working. So true. And I'm so glad that you said data. When you said that, it's like, oh, yes, you could actually measure the time that you took to practice these presentation skills or to work on your product knowledge or to research what an opportunity is in exploring a new market. All of these things, you'll have work product to show that you actually did it. And it wasn't just sitting thinking about it for, I don't know, 10 to 30 minutes. You actually put effort in into creating a work product. Yeah, you don't, very few things do you know whether they work right away. And anything worth doing, you will never know whether it works right away because it's a long process. So you have to give it time. I've got this, I usually tell people they need to apply at least the two week rule. So we'll, we'll go back to my marathon example. If you're trying to run a marathon and you're not a runner and someone gives you a training program and it starts you off really basic and small, but if you quit after a couple of days because you feel like it hasn't gotten you anywhere, you have no data to show whether you're getting anywhere or not. So I always say, whatever it is you're starting, if it's kind of a big goal, commit to giving it two weeks of concentrated, consistent effort. And then at the end of that time, take a look and see whether this is actually working for you. Invariably, it will be because two weeks is enough time to have improved, to have learned some lessons from it to have seen some gains, to feel a little more fulfilled, to realize that hint of possibility that, hey, maybe I can actually do this. And then you will probably proceed on. But if you stop after three days and say, all right, is this working? 
well, nothing really works after three days. Nothing hard actually works after three days. And I actually think it's the worst thing if you do hit immediate success because that circumvents the whole process of what you should learn. (laughs) And it means that whatever you're trying to do is actually relatively easy. During the lockdown, small business leaders like everyone else have had their routines disrupted and distractions have been compounded by working from home and all of the other responsibilities and interactions that we have to deal with. It also creates an opportunity for people to make new impressions of themselves to their colleagues or maybe to their customers. What are the opportunities the situation presents for people who have not stood out as leaders? Maybe they are more effective at doing certain aspects or not as extroverted as their colleagues are. But what do you think the opportunities are for people who are working from home to shine that they may not have had those opportunities to shine when they were working in a regular environment? One example I would say is leadership-based, and I don't have the study in front of me, but I, I wrote about it recently. A study looked at the traits that people assign to deciding if somebody is a leader in an in-person setting. And it tends to be extroversion and, you know, good communication skills and, you know, that the kind of hearty, forceful, you know, impactful leader. But the skills that are, that people identify as necessary or that they want from a leader in a remote capacity, they're staying on task, helping other people out, collaborating, getting things done, keeping the trains running on time. So one of the ways, hopefully, that the worker bees of the world are feeling a little better about themselves and seeing opportunity is the fact that in a remote setting, people value getting things done a lot more than they value the, you know, the talking and the hearty, you know, hail fellow, well met kind of a thing. And so I hope that's there. And if you are a person who you know, is working more remotely now, even if you run a business, your customers are going to be more interested, not in your necessarily, you know, how friendly you are and outgoing and what kind of charisma you have and the impression you make in a room. They're going to care a lot more about what you get done for them and how responsive you are and how you follow up and how organized you are. And that's one way that I think both people that run businesses and just people in general can shine in a situation like this because the skills of doers are more valued now. It's so true. I've had many conversations with people who use the words, I I think that this person is struggling. And it's not how you show up on your Zoom call. It's not how you've rearranged your dining room in order to make it a good environment. It's how are you following through? How are you delivering what you promised to deliver on? The people that were really good at going into a meeting and seeming like they're in charge and, you know, I don't know, somehow just the the personal, interpersonal skills of navigating meetings. You know, we all know people like that that are really good at that. They struggle in this environment because that ability is much less valued now. People don't really care about that. They care, they compare about what you got done and how you helped and whether you collaborated and whether you stepped in and they care about the deliverables. I guess the best way to put it is substance is a lot more important than style in a remote setting. One of the aspects of setting yourself up for success that I read your book is that people are looking for feedback in all the wrong places. Can you elaborate on that? That's an interesting question. And if you don't mind, I'm going to come at it from the perspective of feedback versus advice. Feedback, oftentimes, if you ask someone for feedback, invariably, they're going to tell you something positive because nobody likes to say bad stuff. (laughs) Nobody enjoys being the person that has to give you critical feedback. And especially if you have asked them for that. And there's almost that implicit hey, what did you think about this? Where we feel like we're supposed to say something nice. 
So a better way, if you are looking for constructive ways to improve whatever you have done or are doing, the better way to go at that is instead of asking for feedback, ask for advice. Ask someone, what should I do to this? Or what would make this better? Or what can I improve? Ask for the constructive side. That frees the person up to then say, okay, since you asked, here are some things I think you could do, or here are some things you, I think you could do better. You gave them permission to tell you what you need to hear, whereas if you're asking for feedback, oftentimes people just assume that they need to tell you what you want to hear. So that would be my best advice is stop asking for feedback, especially from people who aren't going to be the people that actually consume what you do or that buy what you do or that are your customers, both internal or external. But people that you just want to ask because you're hoping to hear good things. So if you really want to know what to improve, ask people for advice and give them permission by doing so to give you that advice. And don't get defensive as soon as you get it, because that will shut the door on any good advice you could have gotten. What's one of the best ways you've heard people accept advice in a way that shows they've heard it? and acknowledges the person for giving it, which may not have been you know, what they were expecting to give. The best way would be to ask some sort of clarifying or follow-up question. Not a question that implies that the person's wrong, but a, all right, let's see, let's think of an example. Let's say I asked you for advice on doing a better job of answering your questions succinctly. <laughs> that seems appropriate to this situation. Since I often go around the barn, that's a Southern expression, by the way. If I said, hey, Bill, Give me some advice on how I could be a little bit more to the point. If you said, well, you know, the thing is, take a pause and think before you start talking and try to boil it down in your head to one or two sentences. And then if you elaborate, it's okay, but at least you've gotten to your main point and you may find that you don't need to elaborate. That sounds like actually pretty good advice that I should take. I could then say, instead of saying, yeah, but what if it's a really long question and you know I need to give a comprehensive answer? That implies that I'm thinking your advice is wrong. A clarifying question would be, are there times when that doesn't work or are there times that you can think of that you've done that so that I can learn from what you've done? Do ask a question that allows the other person to realize that you listened, that you believe in what they say, that you feel it's valid, and that you want to know more because you want to be able to apply it. If you do that, then implicitly you have said thank you because you're actually listening and taking it to heart. And then at the end, you can say, hey, thanks a lot. I really appreciate that. I, I had never thought of that, or I'm going to try that, or something that's affirmational. And by the way, if if someone gives you good advice, or if you give they give you advice that isn't you don't think is super, shoot, try it anyway, because you never know. If you only do the things that you currently do, you will only get the things you currently get. So if someone gives you advice, at least try it and then use the data to tell you whether it was good or not. In your book, you talk about work too hard on one area of your business and other areas suffer. What's the caution that you're offering people who are looking to improve and to achieve more when they develop that focus? Because it seems kind of counterintuitive. The main point of that is that we all have things that we like to do, and usually those things are the things that we are good at. And so when you are good at something, it's natural to want to do more of that because it feels good and it's fulfilling and you feel like you're accomplishing things. But if, you, if you're running a business, unfortunately, you don't have the option of only doing the things that you think you are good at. And so 
that's the cautionary tale is to take a step back and say, okay, if I was giving someone else advice about their business and I was looking at what I do on a daily basis, what would I say that person needs to do more of? And those are probably things that you're not doing because you don't necessarily enjoy them or they don't seem fun or they're not fulfilling, but they are probably the areas of weakness that you need to improve. And there's a cliche around this somewhere, the, the whole, if you improve your weak points, then I don't even know where that goes. <laughs> but basically, the idea is sometimes the things that you don't do well, if you turn those into a strength, not only will you improve your business, but you will also find that you like doing them because now you're good at it. So I think that's what I was trying to say is that if you're not good at something now, you won't like it. But when you put in the time and effort to get better, you may find that you like it a lot. And it may be something that you will do more of than what you thought you liked. I think it's a truism that nobody enjoys doing things that are uncomfortable or that make them feel awkward or that don't produce the desired results. Yet that's part of the learning curve that we all have to go up in adopting any new skill set. I'm going to ask you to, to comment on what it was like when you realized that as an ink writer, ink magazine writer, you had to quickly figure out the game that views are really what the payoff is. And you had to do a lot of activities. You had to build these activities into your, your workday that weren't part of researching and writing, which I think were probably, I'm just going to guess, are the fun parts of the job for you. Can you talk about how you discovered it and then how you put a plan in place to go from the typical author, let me just give context here, um, who writes a piece on ink, may get a couple thousand and maybe up to 300,000 views. And your views are over a million per month. So you've obviously succeeded at this. What was it like when you first realized that you had some stuff to do that wasn't natural or expected as part of the job? The trick to that, and it applies to just about anything, is we often start things based on what we like to do. So if you start, if you're a cabinet maker and you like woodworking, then you probably start a cabinet making business because you like woodworking and you enjoy that process. But if you're trying to build a hugely successful cabinet making business, then you can't just sit around all day and make cabinets. So for me, I enjoyed the writing process and I thought that was really fun. But in terms of how I was paid and, and how it would lead to other opportunities, I needed to build a bigger audience. That was the outcome that I needed, not so the success for me was building a bigger audience, not writing things that I enjoyed to write, if that makes sense. Now, there's a way to, to accomplish both, but I had to take a step back and say, okay, the game here, if you want to call it a game, and I just used air quotes, the game here is writing things that people want to read that is helpful, useful, actionable, that they will share with others that will help me to build an audience. So I had to say, okay, what topics are people most interested in? What advice are they looking for? What are the things that help small business owners the most? How can I write that in a way that is engaging and hopefully mildly entertaining and that causes people to want to share it? And then how can I gain attention for my stuff? What social media things do I need to do? What connections do I need to make? You know, Do I need to chase famous people who will bring an audience with them to the things that I have written about that person? say for an interview or something. So I had to figure out all those other pieces that allowed me to succeed at the game that I was really trying to play, which was to build a bigger audience and build lots of pages. So to go back to my cabinet maker example, you can want to make cabinets all day, but somehow if you want to build a thriving business, you also have to want 
to hire people to do that with you. You may have to want to hire salespeople. You may have to want to market yourself in certain ways. You may have to want to create multiple locations. You have to figure out what your actual end goal is and then make sure the activities that you take, that you do, support that end goal. So say you want to start a restaurant and you've decided that you want to have, I don't know, you want to do $20 million in business a year. Well, you can't start a 10-table restaurant in a corner building of a strip mall or a corner location in a strip mall. It won't support what you're trying to get to. That may be a step, and that may be something that allows you to grow and to use as a foundation, but that can't be what you do. So the real key is deciding what is my goal or the way I just described it, what game am I really playing And then what does winning look like? And then what things do I need to do to make sure that I win? And they may not always be the things that you want to do, but if that's your goal and you're serious about it, that's the things that you need to do. When you realized that you needed to reach out to influencers, that you needed to appeal to people on social media, and also look for people who were amplifiers of your work, what was it like for you to build that into your schedule? Do you do that right after your articles? Do you do it on an ongoing basis? How does that work in your profession? Back then, and it's changed over time. So back then in the period you're talking about, I would, you know, I was ghostwriting for other people. I was doing some stuff for myself. I was writing for Inc. So I would write an Inc. article or two. I would work on some ghostwriting stuff. And then in the afternoon, I would reach out to people that I wanted to interview that I thought had a name that might be appealing to a broader audience and it might bring people along with them. Unfortunately, at the time, I couldn't go right to the Cubans or Bransons and have them respond to me because why would they? So I had to look around for the people that I could get, which turned out to be, you know, a guy that makes cat litter out of coconut shells or whatever it may be. And I just said, okay, I'll get the people I can get and I will do a great job on this so that if I then send that as an example of the work I do to someone who's slightly higher up the notoriety ladder, they'll look at it and say, huh, that's pretty good. I'm, maybe I should talk to this guy. And I just kept working my way up that way. And so it wasn't an everyday thing, but two or three times a week, I was reaching out to people and, and trying to make connections and trying to make contacts. And it was a slow process. But then somewhere along the way, I got lucky. And I, I talked to a guy that writes TV shows and movies. And it turned out he was a, a great interview and oddly enough, had many entrepreneurial connections. And that led me to some other folks who read that, who were also kind of famous. And, and before I knew it, I was, in the, I was at the levels that I wanted to be. But it took a long time to get there. Jeff, why do you say that sometimes less is more when it comes to willpower? Well, we think of willpower as this thing that, you know, if I want to do something really hard, I have to have tons and tons of willpower. But if you construct your environment in a way and you construct your routine in a way that you don't need to actually use any willpower, then that's the perfect option. So one way to do that is through something called choice architecture, where basically you build your environment around you so that you can only make the choice that you want to make. A simple example would be if you want to drink more water and less soda, you put three water bottles on your desk and you make sure they're there every day so that whenever you reach for something to drink, the water is there and you have to physically get up and go three rooms away in order to get the soda. You know, that that's a simple one. A lot of people do that if they want to work out first thing in the morning. They lay their clothes out right by the bed so that when they get up, they stick their clothes on and they go right out the door and they have to actively choose not to do that. 
So that's the key to the less is more. The more that you can make choices, not choices, then the less willpower you have to exert and the more something just becomes part of your routine. Because it's important to recognize that willpower is kind of a finite resource. Oh, absolutely. It's renewable, but when we wake up each day, there's just a certain amount of that energy and attention we have to making choices. So you're saying why fritter away on things that we can not only decide in advance that support our goals and the direction we want to take our lives and our businesses, but also enhance them. Yeah, and the, and the key there, you made a really good point. Momentum makes a huge difference where willpower is concerned. So if you have something that you set up that you do first thing every day and you make it as easy as possible to accomplish that thing, when you're done, accomplishing anything, no matter how minor it is, always feels good. That's why people sometimes make to-do lists with easy items on it just because it's fun to check them off. But if you set out to do that something first thing and you get it done, it feels good, makes you happy. You get this little dose of motivation that will carry you on to the next thing. And before you know it, you're rolling through the day with all these little successive doses of motivation. As far as I'm concerned, motivation is based on effort. You put in some effort, you accomplish something that feels good, feeling good makes you happy. That gives you a little motivation to accomplish something else. And it becomes this constantly renewable thing. So you don't need this massive supply. You just need enough action and success in order to get you to that next step for action and success. So my that's one of the things that I often tell people is always start your day with something that is important to you, that you really want to get done. Grease the skids so that everything is ready for you to start it when you first sit down to work or whatever it is you do. And then when you accomplish that, not only do you feel good because you knocked out something important, but it gets that momentum going that will carry you through the rest of the day. If you think about a day where you kind of eased into it and then you almost had to force yourself to start working, the rest of the day is really hard. So make it easy right away. Makes good sense. Jeff, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that should be fun. Jeff, earlier I asked you about who's a person who influenced, inspired you growing up, and you talked about your grandfather. What's a song you found inspiring growing up when you were a teenager? I used to listen to Walk This Way by Aerosmith every morning when I did sit-ups before I went to school, all through high school. My mom grew to hate that song. So if you think about building your audience, which is still a priority and an objective even today, What's the most effective way that you have these days for getting the word out and expanding your audience? Writing things that people actually want to read and share and that is beneficial to them. You can think of all the tricks and hacks and social media strategies you want, but when you provide good, solid, actionable advice, tips, strategies, and people gain value from them, they want to share it and they will come back for more. What would you say is the best $100 purchase you've made in the last six months? Oh, I got a new pair of Nike running shoes that actually fit me really well. I tend to pronate somewhat. My heel kind of kicks in when I run. And these support me extremely well and feel good and have been much better for my knees. Running shoes are one of the things you don't skimp on. That and ergonomic chairs for your office. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I am almost totally social media free. And that has been a wonderful thing. I never was social media-y, if there's such a word, 
uh, like for a friend kind of a way, like I'm not on Facebook and never was. My old girlfriends are not interested in finding out what I'm up to, but I, I never used it for like making connections or making friendships and stuff. But I used to think that it carried more weight professionally than it did. And when I stopped trying to use it as much, I didn't notice a downturn in anything. And I actually noticed a little more free time and it was probably a little better for my mental health. Let's get back into a larger question, which is a mistake people make about the importance of being happy, in particular with goal attainment and achievement. What is it that people mistakenly do or think about how achieving some goal or whether it's an income goal or whether it's an accomplishment or whether it's, you know, attending the right event when we used to attend events, <laughs> what is it that works better than thinking that attainment will make you happy? Two answers to that. One is that achievements do make you happy, but it's a very fleeting thing. And the satisfaction does not last particularly long. What, what's the old joke about if you buy a bigger house within two months, it's a small house? you know, because you always fill it with furniture. So the achievement is fun, but what you really have to want when you're choosing a goal is you can't want just the outcome. I don't know. Let's say your goal is to build a $10 million business. We'll use that. Okay. If you get there, that will be fulfilling and rewarding and it will feel good. But what you really have to want is all the effort that's involved in getting you to that place. You want, you have to want setting your business up properly. You have to want hiring and then leading really good employees. You have to want selling because every entrepreneur, no matter what role yours is within the company, you are still involved in sales. You have to want all those things that are involved in getting you there. And if those are the things that you also want, then every day you get to feel good about yourself because you are doing the things and accomplishing the things that you set out to do. So if the only thing you care about is that end goal, you're setting yourself up for a really long period of not being satisfied because you haven't gotten to where you want to be. But if you want the things that are involved in getting you there, then every day you get to feel good about the fact that you are doing things that support a long-term goal. So, you know, if, like my marathon example, which I know I've overused, but if all you want is to run a marathon, you're probably never going to do it. But if you want to do the training and put in the time and see yourself progress and all those other things, if you want that, you will get there. That The outcome will be a byproduct of the things that you actually do. I often think that it's also who you want to become through attaining a big goal. And I'm not talking, you know, a goal to make dinner. I'm talking about something significant. And and it's kind of like when you've accomplished a marathon, you're one of the rare people who can say, I finished a marathon and I've become stronger and leaner and have better cardiovascular health as a result of that. And I got to buy these really great Nikes. Yeah. And you get to the, the best part about it is you get to look in the mirror and say to yourself, I am a person who can do hard things. And once you have done that once, you get to apply that to every other challenge that comes along and you can say, wow, that's going to be really hard. But then again, I did run a marathon. I know what hard work is. I know I can keep my head down and do the work. That reminds me of something. I talked to Rob Durdeck the other day. He's a skateboard guy, but he does the show Ridiculousness on MTV, which seemingly runs all the time on MTV. And I asked him for his definition of success. And he said, if I'm moving towards mastery, that feels like success to me, which is kind of what you just said. It's the idea of I'm getting better at this. I'm gaining a skill. I'm becoming something else. 
that I want to become. And so mastery really is becoming something. And so that's a perfect definition of success. And it's also a really good definition of happiness, because if you become the thing you wish to become, what's more fulfilling than that? The shiny metal on the wall is fun, but knowing inside yourself that you have done something that you set out to do, that's the cool part. Jeff, what's your definition of success? And I write about success all the time. And this is, this is one that I have not boiled down into one sentence. But I would say that my definition of success is being able to do the things that I want to do. And I don't mean fun necessarily, but actually do things that I find fulfilling and rewarding and that make a difference in my life and hopefully make a difference in other people's lives. And it, you know, some amount of financial success obviously comes with that. But the better part is the freedom to do the things that I want to do and that make me feel good about myself, if that makes sense. So I think success is being able to have as much control as possible over what you do and to be able to do things that you want to do and that fulfill you. I think that all the business leaders listening have lit up and sat up in their chairs as they heard you say those words, because control and fulfillment are so important for being successful on the route to building a strong business, one that leads to so many benefits. That's a really good point. And if I can jump in, that's a really good point, because every entrepreneur that I talk to that is successful by, say, in a financial way, they never talk about the money part and they don't necessarily talk about the size of the company or the gross revenue or anything else. They talk about the fact that they set out to do something that they envisioned, that they wanted to do, that they wanted to be in control of, and they managed to work their way through and get to a place where it has become something that not only you know is rewarding for them, but that helps other people lead rewarding lives and, and gives livings and incomes to other people. And in the process, they still stayed in control of what it is that they wanted to do. And so, I don't know, a happy person is a person that actually has the freedom to make choices, I think. And so if you're an entrepreneur, you get to make choices instead of having someone else make those choices for you. And hopefully the choices you make are ones that support your long-term goals, and they should be. But just the fact that you get to make the choices, that is a massive thing. Well, Jeff, you have been so generous in sharing your perspectives and advice with us on my quest for the best. We started off and you talked about your grandfather who inspired you and left you with the, the, the notion that this is the smell of job security. When you're willing to do the extra mile, you can really stand out just on that initiative alone and then continue to build on it. We talked about Tim Ferriss's innovations and ways that he explores and shares with people different hacks, but he really is putting in the hard work to do it. We explored the knowing doing gap and also talked about Bill Gates because he came up with a couple phrases about pursuing problems that save him time. You drew the distinctions between coaches and pros was really important to help people understand you don't want people who just give advice. You want someone who's actually done it, who's been to where you want to go and achieve what you want to achieve. And that when you ask people for advice, it is a sign of respect as well as flattering. And people who are successful want to acknowledge that they've gotten to where they've gotten only through the help, support, and encouragement of others. You shared with us the two-week rule that helps people really get into whatever commitment they've made so that they actually get results and data on what the efforts they're putting in. We talked about the importance of being a leader so that you become someone who 
isn't just showing up in a loud and gregarious way, but especially now that we're meeting in different ways and connecting with others in different ways, what matters is are those who are achieving and following up and supporting others. So it's really that substance over style impact that that has. You mentioned the difference between feedback versus advice which many people find advantageous. And for closing, you made the point that I think will ring home with a lot of people, which is people who are successful and happy are those that have the freedom to make choices. So for all these reasons and so many more, Jeff, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. You're welcome. And thank you for summing it up in a way that made me sound somewhat intelligent. I appreciate that. Jeff, before we say goodbye for now, where can we find out more about you and your work online? Right for Inc.com. So if you go to Inc.com and search my name, you'll find, I don't know, several thousand articles, I believe. I have basically quit the social media thing, but I do sometimes go to LinkedIn. And if you ask to connect with me or follow me, then I will definitely do that. And I actually answer lots of questions there if you ask, because I feel like that is actually a valuable social media thing. Well, Jeff, we're going to make sure people can find direct links on the show notes to this podcast episode, so it makes it super easy for them to find and follow up with you. Jeff Hayden, author of The Motivation Myth, How High Achievers Really Set Themselves Up to Win, thank you again so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Thanks, Bill. It was my pleasure. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.